This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is a crowd podcast. This episode is sponsored by You Can Call Me Al Allen. To be more like Al, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Show. Become an official sponsor. Get bonus content and grow the show today. His back is strong, his beard is thick. Wonders what makes people tick. Joe Marler and his show. Joe Marler, here we go. Hello and welcome to our show. I'm Joe Marler and this is Tom Fordyce. Hello, Joe. You have your laptop out in front of you, and while we converse and hold hands, and now you're pulling me towards you, which is... Is it weird? We're no, interlocking our fingers? I think it's quite nice. What's your, your favourite f- way to hold hands? Um, I would go over the top. No, no, you've got to let me... You can't force it. No, but we were going side to side. No one holds hands facing each other. All right, if we were side to side, so you have your right hand out, I have my left hand out, I'm going over the top, so my palm is now on the top of your hands, and then I'm interlocking my fingers like that. No, What? You can't say no, it's my choice. No, but your arm's, your arm's at a funny angle to walk with. But we're sitting in the studio. Yeah, but if what we were walking... Well, it's not my preference. Well, what is your preference? That's I would question. hold your hand like this. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like I'm a one-year-old child. Yeah, normal. But then interlock my... That's my intimate. In, my index finger. Yeah. So, like, my two fingers to say, oh, piss off, give yeah. it a V. Or around my little finger. Or around your little finger. It makes me feel quite secure and held. And I'll just... I don't know why. I've got your little finger in between my two big fingers and I'll hold you forever and always. We've also left a little gap between our palms, haven't we? A little pocket of air in there. Oh, yeah, so we could, like, <laughs> pretend guff. <laughs> I think that's the strangest intro we've ever done. Where do you stand, Joe, on holding hands in public with the, the lady in your life? I woman do. of your dreams. Still hold hands? I love it. It's a nice thing. Yeah, we we do occasionally. I used to at school at primary school. It was like the in thing, wasn't it? Oh God, I I held hands with with. What was her name? Her name was Emma, mm-hmm. and her surname was a part of the female genitalia. <laughs> <laughs> and people used to call me Joe Sperm like, when we were together. At primary school. Yeah, I know. We were well. We learned about it in like year five or year six. What about Joe? Other public displays of affection, like tongues. Would you tongue Daisy on a bus? 
right tongue. Daisy on a bus. <laughs> if no one was on it. That's not the point. It's public display of affection. Well, there's cameras on it, so I'm sure uh, someone would have seen it. I went out with this Brazilian girl once, which is a different story. Yeah. It was a long time ago, in case yeah. Murph's listening. Um, <laughs> Unlikely. Unlikely. She was very, very keen on public displays of affection. I found it awkward. It is hard one for, I think, is it a British thing? We're mm. not great at that whole no petting thing in, in mm. swimming pools. You never see that in Spain. No. There's no, no sign going, no petting yo. No heavy petting. No heavy on your petting. It's Italian now, is it? It is Italian. <laughs> <laughs> eh, no, no heavy petting. That's Colombia. more French. <laughs> oh, was it? Well, in that case, Joe, I'm going to read the following section while stroking your leg. If you'd like to support the show, you can subscribe on Apple. You've got quite hairy legs. Apple, oh, but I'm going against the grain. If I come down the knee, that's much smoother. You can subscribe on Apple, Spotify and Patreon. Much better. And what are your knees like? Bald. For just a pound a week, you can get bonus... Is that different your knee? Oh, Bonus content, ad-free episodes, and you'll be growing the show at the same time. You've got massive legs. You can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music. How was that? That was lovely, Tom. Really quite soothing mm. and erotic. Can we have a minute before we get the guest on? Let's have a minute before we get the guest on. Maybe two. Two minutes before the guest. Ryan, two minutes before the guest. Hello, my fine friend. Now, before we get on with the rest of the episode... Let me remind you that we have another live show coming up later this year. Here is how it's going to work. We're back at the Clapham Grand in London on the 1st of November as part of the Cheerful Earful Podcast Festival. Tickets are on sale now. What are you waiting for? I have a feeling you may hear moments like this. That, that lad in the corner who shouted, are you single, is now going, fuck, I shout. Whoever finishes third gets the sex toy. Yes, sir. Oh, he's gone for a hug. Excellent. <laughs> now, after our last tour, the worldwide press gave the Joe Marler show five stars. And the audience said this. It was pretty good. It was pretty good. I thought it was sexy as fuck. <laughs> I didn't know who he was. <laughs> it was well worth it. Absolutely unbelievable. Couldn't ask for any better, really. To get your tickets to the Joe Marler show live at the Clapham Grand, click the link in the episode description. Our guest today is David Benedict, and he is a professional theatre critic. Hello, David. Hello. Joe, did you feel in under any pressure as you delivered your lines there? A little bit, but I thought I handled it well, considering... Let's see what the professional critic thinks. Very smooth. Mm. Yeah, good. See, if only he knew the truth. <laughs> Fuck. My first question. Theatre critic yeah. immediately is a negative thing to me in my mind because of the word critic. Yes, I think it's a problem in that I don't think the job necessarily is negative, but you're absolutely right. That's what everybody thinks. Oh, you're there to... I'm there to dress something down uh, and to and to um, judge it negatively. But I really don't think that's what the job is. And I think it, we would be regarded differently if we were called... What is a sports reporter called? They're called a sports reporter when they're criticising... Or a sports writer. Or a sports writer. And if they're criticising a match that they saw that afternoon, they're not called sports critics. But that's what they're doing. And sometimes they go, that was an amazing match and everybody played brilliantly and it was, it was thrilling. And sometimes they go, really, that team deserves to be relegated. And, but they don't get written off as critics, but that's what they're doing. 
It's very confusing for me, though, who's not up to speed with the words of the world like my friend Tom is, because I Google critic meaning and I get a person who expresses an unfavourable opinion of something, so negative, but also a person who judges the merits of literary or artistic works, especially one who does so professionally, i.e. a theatre critic. I would say that first line that you read out is incorrect. Oh. You know, the trouble with Google is it, it brings up sites that are unedited and you've no idea whether it's telling the truth or not. Nowhere is it in a job description uh, that your job is to be negative. Has there ever been a point where maybe have a grudge towards someone or a bias towards someone that you know, like I'm talking like actor or production mm. or whatever company it is, that you know is going to read your, your review... And, you, you know, you might put something a little bit more punchy or favourable to them or not spiteful because I can't... You, can't. you don't strike me you as can't. spiteful. But. People think that criticism is all subjective. And I think bad criticism is all subjective. You go, it's just an opinion. If you ask a member of the audience as they walk out the show what they thought, that is their opinion because they are not being paid to analyse and discuss... Well, this is what you saw, but what you don't realise is the actor completely screwed up and you were, and le left out half the speech, or you could have done the play completely differently. It's my job to know, like if you're writing about Wimbledon, you know how a rally might be constructed and that actually that was lousy play or that that was a fantastic lob which completely wrong-footed the person that was at the net. So if you know about that stuff, you use it as a sports writer to explain what happened to the reader. And I am looking at a show, whether it's a comedy or a tragedy or a musical or whatever in between. And I, it's my job, I think, to analyse what I saw and explain it to the reader. I think my job is basically to get the best possible work to the widest possible audience so that you can go, oh, I didn't think I was really interested in that show, but he's made me understand this. That sounds rather exciting. I'll go. And when you are writing your reviews, so as a former sports writer, whichever sport you covered, there were always cliches which you would be keen to avoid but would naturally slip into your writing, whether it was a way of describing a goal or a try or someone mm. driving a cricket ball or someone putting a forehand down the line. What are the phrases that you Ooh. have to fight not to overuse? Uh, pitch perfect. Mm. That's a really interesting question, and I wish I'd had. I wish I'd thought about this beforehand. But you're right. There are phrases that leap into your head, and you go, "Oh, I could no, don't say that," because because <laughs> you know Martin Amos, who's just who's just died, um, wrote a collection of essays called "The War on Cliche," and he's right. It's sort of dead space because it's somebody Wait. it's somebody else's phrase. It's not yours. What about these theatre? phrases that everyone should know. David, I'm, I'm hoping that you'll help me with a... I'd, I'm not quite sure what you mean. Well, this, from break a leg to strike, what do these theatre phrases mean and where do they come from? Break well, a leg. I, break a leg is a, a 19th century term. If you look at an old-fashioned theatre set in, a, in what's called a proscenium arch theatre, so, you know, like a, a, a standard theatre with, with a stage at one end, with, you know, looking, looking fancy, at the sides, in the wings, where, where actors come on from either side or bits of set come on from either side, there are long strips, vertical strips of black, 
and they are called legs. And if you were an understudy, the hope was that you would go on and that you would break a leg. Therefore, you would break through the legs and be on the stage. So literally nothing to do with nothing the to do tibia, with accidents, fibia, and tibia and fibia. Nothing. No. no. Oh, well, it's actually nicer now, actually. I think Far more pleasant. Toy, toy, toy. This is quite a recent one. I, I don't know. It, I'm sure it dates back to God knows when, but, but I had to look this up about, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. It's like, why is everybody saying toy, toy, toy? Toy, toy, toy. How are you spelling it? T-O-I, T-O-I, T-O-I with dashes Three different in between. words, right. Toy, toy, toy. So, so yeah, so it's 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 just become a kind of trendy expression. I don't know where it comes from. It might be Italy. I, I don't know, but it's, well, it's, let me it's, help, it's good luck. Let me help you on this one, David. Apparently, in Germany, toy, toy, toy uh, comes from the history of spitting to ward off ah. evil spirits and bad luck. Toy, toy, toy. Yes. So it's actually, yeah, it's so actually, actually the word. It's a way of saying good luck, and you're not, I think, I think there's a superstition that you don't say good luck in the theatre. This is probably self-explanatory, but I don't. The 11 o'clock number. The 11 o'clock number, um, shows used to go up traditionally later than they do now. So a show would finish not long after 11 o'clock, because... Um, there's a Noel Coward play written in the 1930s called Tonight at 8.30, um, because that's when plays started. So uh, two and a half hours in, at 11 o'clock, you would have the, just before the finale, the big climactic number, which is the 11 o'clock The number. 11 o'clock number. The Scottish play. The Scottish play is because for reasons that are lost to me from the mists of time, Shakespeare's play Macbeth is famously unlucky. People have had terrible accidents. Everything has gone wrong. Uh, there are famous productions of Macbeth that have been slaughtered by the critics. So it's the play with the worst luck attached to it so you're not supposed to mention it in any other production you know so if you're busy doing the sound of music you don't make reference to Macbeth and if you have to you call it the Scottish play. David Joe has seen me fall asleep in a number of different situations um, never directly in the middle of a podcast but often between them when I was a sports writer it was impossible to fall asleep generally during the stuff you were watching because it was too noisy in the theatre you will often have spells of silence. I often fall asleep in the cinema, which is a regrettable thing. It just happens. Mm. Have you ever fallen asleep in a show? I have fallen asleep in a show, but not when I've been at work. What was it? I actually can't remember. He's, been a, he's a fucking asleep. I, asleep. I was asleep. You know, sometimes you go, it's late, I'm tired, I've had, I've a, had nice a hard tea. day. I don't drink beforehand. I, I refuse to drink beforehand uh, because it's going to make me drowsy, and if the play is boring, then I might just nod off so i don't but yeah it's it's one of the things you have to worry about is is what if i'm not concentrating and i and you start to get nodding dog syndrome oh, where you where I think i'm gonna watch this with one eye <laughs> then you're in trouble <laughs> let's let's rewind for me mainly because yeah. you know what's going on the basics mm. of being a theater critic you go in you, like do you do you buy your ticket or if uh, you decide to put on a show it will be produced by someone that you know handles all the finances and sorts it all out and part of the financing of the show is that critics are given tickets so you you got your ticket you go to the box office or whatever you, mm -hmm. how does it actually work yep. 
for Good you. question. Uh, so, you sit down, you take the seat, the, the lights go down and you start working. You've There's, got your clipboard, have you? You've so, got your notepad. I've got, I've, got a, I've got, it is literally a little black book. I've, I've got a favourite little black book that's, um, for some reason, got squared paper in, not lined oh. paper. I don't know mm. why, it's just... Moleskin or a different brand? Uh, 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 cheap moleskin. So I always go to the theatre with that book and two biros in case one like dies. It. Choice of biro? Um, so no, I just bit, got, I or? found, um, it's not a big, I actually, this sounds so pretentious. No, I love I've, it. I've got, I've got, I use American biros because they oh. don't blot. Oh, really? um, uh, I have. I ran out of them, so I've had to get some English equivalent ones. But the last time I was in the states, I did. I, I bought a load of them. Uh, so I've got my pens. I've got a bottle of water in my bag in case I cough, and uh, some cough sweets f- for the same reason. And that's basically the equipment I need. I need a book and a pen and my eyes open. And then and then what are you wearing? Well, when whatever, in just general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not like I mean, suit I, or no, no, no. I mean, I, I think the days of dressing up for the theatre probably died about twenty years ago. Do you say that negatively or no, positively? No, 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 no. I, no, I think I think it's I think it's nice to make an effort if it's a big opening night, which is what I tend to go to because there's usually a party attached to which critics are clearly uninvited. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, it's quite nice to bother a bit but you know i'm perfectly happy sitting there in in jeans and trainers so i'm a middle class boy when i was growing up a thousand years ago when you're little at children's parties there used to be a memory game where you would be shown it's like the end of the generation game remember the end of generation game where there was a conveyor belt and you had to remember everything on the conveyor belt for me going to the theater is a bit like playing the conveyor belt generation game game because basically everything then happens and I have to try and remember everything that happened and form an argument out of it and that is my review and that's why I make notes it's like oh god the lighting at the beginning of that second scene in the church scene was amazing and really exciting and made me think about blah so I'm trying to remember everything and then the show finishes and I go home and depending on who I write for and when they want the copy I will then in an ideal world I will write it there and then or if I've got enough time I will make notes then go to bed and then get up the next morning and finish it um, which I think is the best of both worlds so you get home and you get the immediate response of I really want to talk about the bit where Joe exploded because it was so exciting uh, so I so I will remember that and I'll, I'll come up with a phrase or something to just explain that moment and then I go okay the bit I needed to remember I have remembered I can now relax I can eat something go to bed and get up the next morning and know that I've got the salient point already written down and then I write the rest of the review. I would, I would need you to just be a little bit more detailed on the when Joe exploded yeah. bit <laughs> just to confirm like what well, how yeah, I exploded. So so let's say there's a there's a scene there's a scene in Act One where you lose your rag and it's really really thrilling and that moment where you smashed the window um, was really extraordinary and so I will remember that and I will make a note. It'll probably you know I'll probably look at my notes and go what oh yes Joe smashing the window that was really exciting so I'll 
make a note of that properly when I get home. And then the next morning, it's there and I don't have to dredge my memory for the good bits. So in, in your writing, Tom, you'd obviously with the sport, say rugby, for example, you'd be you'd have different categories that you're looking for during that. You'd have the set piece that you'd assess at the end of it, the attacking rugby, the defensive performance, some of the individual efforts. What about with the theatre? Have you got different like categories, but when you sit down there and you go, right... This is the assessment of... I have to write about the experience of the show, what it's like to go and see Pretty Woman, what it's like to go and see Wicked, what it's like to go and see, you know, whatever. And do you just write about the show, not the experience? Because some people might have a really good experience because it's comfy chairs or the food or the snacks is good. No, and and if if you go, you know, well, you know, you go and see a show that isn't in a West End theatre, that, that, you know, in a found space or, you know, or, or somewhere wacky. And actually there, it's your responsibility to go and you have to stand and it lasts 17 hours. So you need to know that. And I need to put that in, in my review. Um, or, you know, actually, this was the most uncomfortable experience of my life. There was quite an interesting play going on, but I couldn't watch it because I was squashed in behind too many people squeezed into this venue. If you're a claustrophobe, you shouldn't go. Yeah, so the ex- there is something to write about about the experience of, of being there. It isn't just what's on the stage. Have you ever had to go to some of the wackier... Like, Do you do that or do you yeah. just stick with yeah, the... Yeah, yeah. What are some of the weirder venues that you've had to go to then? There are a lot of companies that do so-called site-specific work where they take over a building and... Uh, you know, and a designer goes wild, and and there are many, many rooms, and you can and you can walk through them and experience different things. I mean, when people think about theatre, they assume a Victorian building with red plush seats and 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 a curtain and gilt around the edge of the stage. But theatre happens in a myriad different spaces and places um, increasingly. And some of the most interesting work happens outside of the West End in smaller studios where you're much closer to the actors. Joe, it's time for us to have a little interval of our own and have some adverts. But on the subject of intervals, David, have you ever left before one? I have left a handful of shows never on duty. I just think you can't. You cannot write about a show and write it off because who exactly like a football match or a rugby match, you've no idea, you know, you might you oh, might no, not score a point exactly. in the first half, what, and then and then there's an interval talk, and everyone goes right, and then the, and then the other side collapses, and you win. It's rare, I think, if you've seen a lot of theatre as I have, to be utterly surprised by the second half. But it does happen, and it's your job. It's your job to turn up at for a seven o'clock curtain and and stay until it finishes. It's not too much to ask. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Shrink the Box is back for a brand new season. This is the podcast where we put our favorite fictional TV characters into therapy. Join me, Ben Bailey-Smith, and our brand new psychotherapist, Namone Metaxas. Hi, Ben. Yes, this season we're going to be putting the likes of Tommy from Peaky Blinders, Cersei from Game of Thrones on the couch to learn why their behavior creates so much drama. So make sure you press the follow button to get new episodes as soon as they land on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Shrink the Box is a Sony Music Entertainment original podcast. We had Jay Rayner, mm-hmm. the food critic, on the podcast before, and we spoke to him about giving bad reviews to restaurants can lead to them potentially losing customer and eventually being shut down. So that's quite a big responsibility on the critics. Do you ever feel that sort of burden? Does that happen with the theatre? Is is what you say going to affect things that hard? I used to work with Jay. He's a very, very good writer and a good bloke. And he knows what he's talking about. And because he really knows what he's talking about, a lot of people read him. And his column uh, is widely read and widely respected. And he therefore does have a large degree of power. I don't think Jay is responsible for opening or closing a restaurant. But a really bad review from Jay, because he writes really well, lots of people read it and they get posted on social media and you know he he has famously slaughtered a few places uh, but he has also raved about places and i know that um, as a result you know restaurateurs have praised him and thanked him because it's turned their businesses round nowhere where i have written has had that clout in new york where there is basically the new york times which has inordinate power because it is the New York Times. And then there is one tabloid, The Post, which is much more like a red-top British paper. So there's That's the, the Times. There's, there's one newspaper of note, The New York Times. And therefore, the theatre critic of The New York Times, if they give a show a bad review, the show will struggle. And it isn't always true, but I know The New York Times has the power to, uh, to close a show. And... Nowhere, thank God, that I have written, I do I have the power to close the show because I don't think it's healthy that one person writing about it can, can take all those people's jobs and, and trash them. I have, when I've been writing for Variety, the trade journal, I know that I have taken the time to explain why I think a certain show is shit and should not therefore and because it was it had american producers on it it was an american title and they were hoping that it would go to broadway it did not go to broadway and that wasn't solely because of me but i really did not help them get to broadway because of my review because i spent a thousand words saying right this is why this isn't good i've just given a not good review to a stage production of brokeback mountain i mean i wasn't horrible about it i didn't i don't i wasn't nasty about anybody in it but i'm sure that the producers are looking at it and going david benedict what the fuck does he know no one has ever poured a drink over me no one no one has ever been violent i mean i know people who have been attacked by pissed off actors or writers or or whatever i've had a couple of pieces of hate mail from um, actors and producers uh, from directors how did they word it? Were they? Did they sort One of... was angry 
uh, and went on for pages. Oh. I think the quote was something like, with one flick of the pen, you have destroyed my entire career. And you go, and you go, and you go oh, for God's sake, you've run, you've, <laughs> you've run the Royal Shakespeare Company and the Royal National Theatre, as it was then called. I mean, you know, I it really don't Nunn. think... It was Trevor Nunn. And, <laughs> uh, and um, in fact, the piece that he took exception to, the head of press rang me a few days earlier and went, thank you for the piece, it was really nice. Because I'd said, you should go and see this play, Sight Unseen, um, because Trevor Nunn has got such a good track record. But I also made a remark about, I can't remember what it was, I think it was something about Trevor Nunn and new writing or something. And he took exception to this and wrote me a two-page typed letter telling me that I was, you know, trying to destroy his his entire career and that if, if I wanted a favour from him in the future, I could whistle for it. Um, <laughs> one other director wrote a really vile, abusive letter uh, and copied it to the boss of Variety. And I'm not going to name him. And I'd only been in the job about three months, so I had a very nasty 24 hours thinking I was about to get sacked. But actually, um, they took my side because I argued my case and and it was all all right. But I think in, you know, I've been writing since the mid-90s. I think... um, to have had to have had two or three pieces of of hate mail in that time, and that's it. It's not not too bad a record. The worst thing to happen to a critic in living memory was think it was German critic who wrote about a Russian ballet in very negative terms, and the director of or the choreographer of the ballet smeared. Um, the critic's face with dog shit. And dog shit will actually blind you. So it's a really fucking dangerous thing. To, I mean, you know, it's, it's out of order on every level, but particularly... Um, so this was when the critic said you will die of boredom. It's not, I mean, it's it's not a great review. No. <laughs> <laughs> but is it is extreme to bad, then go and get a lump of dog shit and smear I, it in the face? I can't think of any circumstance in life that I would go, well, actually, you know what? Fair enough. I'll let you smear dog shit on someone's face. <laughs> Do you know, uh, like in restaurants, they, they know or they yeah. sort of get an idea when a critic's coming or get wind of it and they sort of maybe treat them differently or put them in the nice spot of the restaurant. Has anyone ever either buttered you up or sort of intimidated you or strong-armed you into... Harvey Weinstein. I'm oh, surprised that a character like that did it. I know, how strange. That's such a, such a, such a puppyish sort of a fellow. <laughs> Upstanding. Would do that. Just, for, and just for the listeners that don't know who Harvey Weinstein is, can Harvey we Weinstein, quick... hugely important independent producer in Hollywood founded the Weinstein Company with his brother and then Miramax and was a huge player in Hollywood and has more Oscars than you can count for producing everything from the English patient onwards. Was a huge power broker, has since found himself languishing in jail uh, because of his uh, serial abuse and rape of women. So that is who we're talking about. Piece of shit. Piece of shit. So actually, earlier when we spoke about we'd never be in a situation where we'd want to smear dog shit in someone's face, (laughs) that, if I found myself, you know, having a cup of tea with said Yeah, I might turn a blind eye as you picked up the dog shit. Thank you. I know where this is heading and I'm just busy myself elsewhere. (laughs) Great. We found an appropriate time to smear dog shit in someone's face. Nice. Uh, So... Harvey Weinstein decided that he wanted to get involved in theatre and he made a film with Johnny Depp called Finding Neverland, Mm. which was about the writing of Peter Pan. 
And he made the film and he decided it should be a musical, which I always thought was questionable, but there we are. He did it and he got a very good creative team together and they did what's called an out-of-town tryout. And this has been going on since the 1950s, at least, where if you have a big musical, you work on it and you try it out somewhere quietly off the beaten track. And in America, that used to be New Haven and Boston and places like that. And they, they had theatres where, where lots of famous shows tried out and then eventually opened on Broadway. So you had, you've had, literally, you've tried it out. And Harvey Weinstein decided to try out Finding Neverland in Leicester at the Curve Theatre, big theatre there. Because Harvey Weinstein knew best, he didn't use theatre PRs. I knew it was going on because I knew what was going on in, in, in theatre, but I was not invited to review it. And I thought, interesting, but OK. I did, however, know the director. And the director said, as a favour, will you come up and look at it and give me your thoughts? And I thought, well, I'm not reviewing it, so I can do that. So I went up. And as I arrived at the theatre, someone from the theatre ran up to me and went, I'm really sorry, we're now in a very, very difficult position because you should be reviewing the show, but the PRs didn't know to contact you because they don't know who Variety is because Harvey's used people that don't know shit from Shinola. I went away and came back and reviewed it on its press night and gave it a bad review because it was, and I was not alone, everybody did, it was, it was the wrong piece, it wasn't done well, and Harvey being Harvey decided that he wanted to implement loads of changes immediately so even though the creative team were all due to fly home, he kept them all in Leicester for 10 days and then demanded that all the critics went back and saw it again. Yeah. And only two of us decided that we wanted to sit through a bad show twice. So I went up and the Daily Mail went up. As I arrived at the theatre, Harvey Weinstein's assistant approached me and said, Harvey would love to speak to you in the Fuck interval. It and I said, I'm sure he would, but I have a job to do. And my job is to be detached from the production. Uh, I can't speak to members of the production. I said, no. And she looked very unhappy. I went, I'm really sorry, but uh, you can't do it. And she then found me in the interval and said, Harvey really would like to speak to you. <laughs> See, clearly she'd been got at. Uh, and I said, I'm very sorry, but I Harvey is doing his job, which is to produce the show, and I'm doing mine, which is to write about it independently. Uh, and I took my seat for the second half and realised that Harvey was across the aisle from me. Um, and he looked at me, and I thought, OK, fine, keep smiling, reviewed the second half. And as I got up, as the lights came up, trying to beat a hasty retreat, he stood in front of me so that I couldn't leave and said... You realise that I'm very important to theatre. Oh I went, um, yes. He said, I've got lots of other shows coming down the river. So, um, you know, it's very important that my work is properly recognised, uh, particularly by someone like, uh, like you writing for Variety. At which point, a member of the public, to whom I am eternally grateful, sort of half overheard us and said to Harvey, are you anything to do with the production? And he turned to greet this person and I legged it as fast as possible. <laughs> But, you know, I was intimidated for five seconds. It, you know, it was, it was fine. It wasn't a problem. I'm not, you know, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to go to court and claim that he abused me. But I, I just thought in those five seconds, it was scary because he was absolutely throwing his weight around. So when all the subsequent revelations came out and even the most minor cases went, you know, actually 
this is a man who wielded power. I know exactly what they meant, and and you know, and he he was just mean to me for for ten seconds. He I wasn't anywhere in the same league as the people that suffered, but yeah. It's a very, very rare event. I mean, people are nice to me on opening nights and smile, but on the whole, everybody just keeps a, a, a safe distance. Everybody knows there's a job to be done, and they are putting on the show. They would like good reviews. They know that we can't be bought, so we sort of everybody sort of nods politely at one another and goes about their business. Did you do the second review? I of did it? do the second review. And Any it was, better? No, still dog shit. No, brilliant. Different flavored dog shit, but it was still dog shit. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by the following splendid people. Under the Sea, Sebastian Schlofsky, the Ian Malaband. Air Jordan, Blaylock. The only way is Gareth Essex. Gold, Frankincense and Simon Burr, the psycho Tracy Pierce. All I want is a home somewhere. It's Oliver Bale. Rollerball Becky Dyson. Ken the Mayor, Andrew Harrison and Aaron Slater. Something inside so carries strong. Director, Tom Anderson. And the Thunderbird, Tracy Fuller Burke. To be more like all of them, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Marler Show. Become an official sponsor, get bonus content, and grow the show today. David, um, the Joe Marler Show recently completed a live tour. <laughs> So uh-huh. I don't finish this bit. There's oh. a number of items that we tried on stage, some of which worked, some of which worked less well. We could have done with some out-of-town tryouts. You could have, probably. We Especially the we rolling, Adele rolling the deep number. The chat you know GPT I mean? section we were never happy with. Should we get some feedback from David on a couple of items yeah, okay, we tried? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. David, um, there was an item which sounds ludicrous when I try and describe it, <laughs> but please go with it where Joe had bought an inflatable sofa from Amazon, it looked a bit like a giant vagina. Purple. A purple vagina. Yeah. Joe, you, you pick up the story of what you were doing with the... Well, I, because you fuckers didn't fill the stage properly or appropriately with enough, it was a load of empty shit. I was like, I need to buy some, you know, props. So I bought this blow-up sofa, but you had to blow it up by running, like, down the aisles to fill it with air. You couldn't just right. blow it up with yeah. a... with a pump which in hindsight I should have done because it's quite hard before the show. I only did it once. I got Archie to do the... <laughs> the I was a bit younger, yeah. Anyway, so it was this fold-up sofa and then I had to model different poses on it to thing it. And now that I've said it out loud to a professional <laughs> critic of theatre shows, <laughs> what in the fuck were we thinking as a section? Just, but, just but, but, your but, but, initial but, reaction to me lying yeah, I'm on a... Thinking, I'm thinking, this is not going to work out well. But the but but that is exactly why you should do a tryout because it seemed a good idea when you dreamt it up in the room mm. and then you then you suddenly do it for real and you go no this is wrong isn't it and I couldn't see it because we were all carried away because we thought it was funny or whatever it just seemed like a good idea and that's why you have to get it out there and you have to try we could have probably done with longer than half hour rehearsal. <laughs> Sounds like it. We had a number of issues, um, David, one of which was that we did no rehearsals before the opening night, partly because I went on holiday at Easter and then I came back from holiday and went straight to Glasgow. We were unfamiliar with the script. You're lucky you still got a job. Really? Really unfamiliar. And then at most venues, the technical rehearsal that Steve was doing 
with the choir and would, would take up most of the time. Yeah. Also because of... If you're doing local choirs, that will eat up your time. Mm. Yeah. So sometimes it would be a case of which bit do you want to rehearse. It, it, it's hard though, because it is important. I like the sound of these... Um, Previews. Was it previews that you you tell the audience like yeah. we're going to be making yeah, change? Yeah, yeah, well, it's not going to be perfect. Or yeah, like when a, yeah, yeah. Basically, a comedian basically, does basically a... the the, the pre- previews are previews have reduced prices, so everybody knows that they're you know you're seeing you know it adds up. It's not like oh well we haven't bothered to do Act Two yet. Um, it it adds up, but it's not the it's not everybody's final thoughts, and that things might change. But there was also a number of times where we brought something in on the night that we hadn't done before we just spoke about it as an idea and then that ends up being the best bit about like the last one we did in bristol with the um, banksy cam yeah that, that was really steve good. thought up on the night that we hadn't done in the f- previous four shows ended up being one of the best bits and the audience loved it but then the variety as well between the audiences and the different shows and how in show one and three your chicken story please high calibre it's about a chicken called no. Mike who headless chicken who lived for 18 months he said it aloud having... to a professional okay. critic it's even worse it's a real story it landed really well in uh, one two and three but then four flat as a pancake flat as a pancake and it's it's so dependent on the audience it's like actually... and then and then the, you know it's the job of a director to go right why is that story working some nights and not others there will be a reason it isn't solely the audience you can you can guide audiences towards stories and usually when something isn't working it's the setup that's wrong not the you know it's not don't don't sort the punchline the chicken story is not working in in manchester because you actually the run up to it yeah. doesn't hasn't put the audience at their ease to so accept the me? story no I'm i do at... the run up to the chicken story you <laughs> <Yeah>. fuck <laughs> maybe it came too early in the second half yeah. often does yeah i will put this on record though david we did manage to sell out our entire tour well there you go including I can't believe I'll say this sentence out loud. The Palladium. Yeah, I. I mean, I, I haven't mean, got, I haven't got a hat on. But if I did have a hat on, I would. I would tip it in your direction. You. Sir. The only what issue a building is, that is, by the way. What, yeah, I know. What, what? Isn't it incredible? Know, the, idea, the, idea, the idea. It's like hello, everybody. You know, Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland, everyone, and now Joe. Thank you very much. I'd be happy with that. The only issue I have with that is that was the first time. So. Now they've seen that we, if we went to play the Palladium again, yeah, you after see, it's the like, sort it's of like, it's like the difficult stuff, second album. Mm. At least two hundred people will turn up. The rest is just empty and dead. <laughs> it's a big venue to be empty oh, as well. It's two thousand two hundred seats. It was scary. It was actually quite scary, wasn't it? I just kept thinking how beautiful it was with those three tiers, and it was sort of intimate is, but huge at the same incred- time. I've never stood on the stage there, but it's an incredibly. Beautiful house. I mean, I don't know what other venues you play, but there are some really staggeringly beautiful theatres in this country where, where, you know, you stand on the stage and you and you look out and just go, wow, these buildings are something else. Do you ever get fed up? Do, like, how many times have you seen the same show? For example, Mamma Mia. Mm. Have you seen that well, more no, than it, five that times? interested me. So I went to the opening night of Mamma Mia in 1999 and my ex had not 
seen Mamma Mia on stage and really wanted to see it. So I took him uh, about a year ago and we had a great time. And so I have only seen that twice. Um, There are very few productions of a play that I've seen more than once. Um, There was a a play at the National recently called Phaedra uh, with Janet McTeer, who's in Ozark and, and... and, and Paul Chahidi, who's in this country, and, and lots of other people. It was, it was great, and I loved it so much. I went back to the last matinee. But on the whole, I see most things once. However, there are plays that come up again and again and again, like Hamlet. So there are, yeah, there are plays that I have seen. There are classics that get revived that I've seen a lot. Is there an official review system as well? Not, not just like personal reviews or from professional. Mm. Is there like a, a rating system? Like in restaurant, you get Michelin stars or something oh, like I that. See. Do you have like a, a Michelin um, star equivalent for... No, no. Uh, it's a really interesting point. I don't know when it started to happen. I think it was the end of the 90s. Star ratings arrived. Until then, reviews did not have star ratings. You just wrote. The thing of which I'm probably proudest is that I fought a battle at the Observe. I was the arts editor of the Observer newspaper and I won the battle not to have star ratings because I don't believe in them. Because they're reductive. They're reductive. I have one more question, Joe, and I apologise in advance for this question, David, because it is frankly impossible for you to answer. So the caveat I'm giving you is you can change your mind at any point and this will not go on any sort of uh, gravestone whenever that moment comes. The greatest thing (laughs) you have ever seen in the theatre is... You have to give me warning of something like that. I can't think... I... Well... It was genuinely unforgettable, and I was about 16, 15, 16. My grandmother used to take us as a family to the theatre once a year as a present at Christmas. Superb. So I'd seen a couple of musicals, and I thought, mm, okay, they were, you know, didn't light my fire, and she t- took us to some straight plays, and, and I liked those. Then, a couple of years later, my friend Michael and I decided to go to see a show in the West End. We stood outside this theatre that had this musical on called Gypsy, which we didn't, which we'd sort of dimly heard of. The lead was Angela Lansbury, and it was long before Murder She Wrote, and she was sort of famous, but we didn't really know why, and we certainly hadn't seen her. So we went. Years and years later, at the Olivier Awards, the the show has lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. And I was working with Sondheim. He was given a special award. Uh, He rang me and asked me what he should say in his speech. So we talked it through. So I went to the party afterwards and I said to him, could you introduce me to Angela Lansbury? Because she was there singing one of his songs. And he introduced me to Angela Lansbury and I said, it's a great pleasure to meet you. You ruined my life. And she looked a bit surprised. And I said, when I was 16, I went into the West End and I didn't really know anything about it. And I went to see this show called Gypsy and you played the lead. And I had never seen anything like it. And I thought all musicals would be as good as that and all leading performances would be as good as that and life has been one long disappointment. <laughs> and she laughed and and it was all very nice. Um, but it was true. It, it completely blew my head off and I really did think that musicals could be as thrilling as a really, really good play because it's a fantastic piece of work. And I've seen other productions of that show, both here and on Broadway, and nobody has touched Angela Lansbury. That, Joe, is a wonderful story to finish the most enjoyable of episodes. Finish, or as they say, 
in the theatre. Denouement. Denouement. <laughs> Denouement. The denouement. They don't really say that in the theatre. <laughs> <laughs> but a nice try. Where they, say, they... They, say, they say it in thrillers, and the denouement is the un... where Hercule Poirot unmasked the fact that it was Tom who murdered everybody. He smiled, but he was a villain. Well, Tom, I would like to thank... <laughs> Which voice you did? <laughs> David. Yes. <laughs> I would like to thank you on behalf of Tom and Ryan and other members of the Joe Marler Show production for coming today and telling us what it's like to become and be a theatre critic. It was my very great pleasure. Oh, my God, you've got a fucking <laughs> unbelievable voice as well. Anyway, David, thank you so much. My it's pleasure. Brilliant. Thank you. Should we give our very own review of that episode and David's performance uh, in it? I find myself, Joe, drawn towards giving him a star review. <gasps> Five... Out of five, but I'm not going to do that because David doesn't like star reviews. I could understand me wanting to give star review because I haven't got the ability to write a proper five, six hundred word review. You have. You've literally built your entire life... A must-listen smash. <laughs> ...on being able to write and entertain with your words. You lazy fuck. <laughs> David, full stop, was full stop, not full stop, shit full stop he full stop was full stop fantastic exclamation mark exclamation mark exclamation mark exclamation mark you only ever need one and use them very sparingly no if I put three exclamation it's marks, not three times better no but I need to feel it because I've got to get my 600 word quota and it's the ex- not a word does it not count as a no. as, as a character is not a word no okay then David was fantastic no full stops or anything just open ended so that he can continue being fantastic. Thank you, David. Joe, the curtain is closing on this episode. Would you please make your way to the bar or to the exits? Good night and thank you for coming. See you next time. Encore! 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 I'm afraid you're the only person left in the theatre, so there can be no encore. The actors have gone home, and in fact, that's the cleaner trying to hoover under your feet using a Henry. Goodbye. Goodbye. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Sports Social Podcast Network.